Welcome to the Avenue Community Church's podcast. We are a family of Christ followers seeking shalom in Memphis. We pray that you are encouraged by today's message. And as you listen, may the word of God shape you to be more like him. Uh, we are in a capital campaign. Everybody say, yeah! Stop clapping. Everybody do this. You know what I'm saying? Do this. Yeah! We're in a capital campaign. Um, and so, um, you know, as we preach through our capital campaign, um, we will be preaching through uh, the book of Nehemiah. Um, we will concentrate really on the kind of the first, first half of the book, really when God calls Nehemiah, one of his servants, to come back and lead a contingent of people uh, to rebuild the walls of Jerusalem. Um, we could have just come in here. Um, how many of y'all have been a part of capital campaigns before or fundraisers? Uh, I'm sure some of y'all have been a part of some good ones, and I'm so glad God sent you to the Ave if you've been a part of good capital campaigns. <laughs> some of y'all have been a part of some bad ones, and you're scarred. You know, the minute you came to this church and you heard somebody say capital campaign, you were like, you put that Baptist finger up, and you about to tip out the door. Um, and, you know, we could have just you know, showed you some cute pictures of the building and some architectural renderings, and we could have sold a bunch of pizza pies and t-shirts, you know, we probably could have sold, you know, you know, we could have just sold 100,000 pictures of op just like this and probably made all the money, but in the end, you know what I'm saying, um, Eunice, Eunice said she would have bought <laughs> all 100,000. Um, we could have did that, right? We could have did that, um, but listen at me, y'all. As your pastor um, and as a session, we recognize that this is a unique moment in the life of our church. Um, And we want to pastor you through it. We want to disciple you through it. We want you to grow through it. This is not about the money. Can I just be honest with you as your pastor? I ain't worried about no money. God going to give everything we need and whatever we get is what we need. So I'm not worried about that at all. But there is something God is calling us to as his covenant children in this season, right? There is a greater revelation of his person that we want to help you unpack and live more fully out of through this season. And so we will preach through Nehemiah. um, And because we believe there's just some good stuff in there that's timeless, whether it was a campaign or not a campaign. um, I think, um, you know, me and Josh were kicking it. He was like, now listen, man, are you just about to get up there and abuse the scriptures and, uh, uh, you know, manipulate us to get, give money? I was like, no, Josh, I'm not going to do that. But he was helping me work out what I was going to do. And in that moment, I realized, man, you know what? What I want, when all this is said and done, I want us to be people who are better prepared to live more lives fully surrendered to Jesus, whatever that means. Marriages, school, life parenting, whatever the case may be, I think that's what I desire for us um, as a people. So with that being said, let us begin. You know, I think if you live long enough, all of us will receive that call. Everybody say that call. You know, it's that kind of dreaded call when, you know, family member calls and says, hey man, you know what, mom's sick, right? 
that call says that, you know what, something has happened and, and someone needs to be taken in, right? That call where, you know what, hey, we're about to lose this asset. And so, hey, we need to rally the troops. We're calling and pulling on relational strings, right, of people in our immediate circle to figure out how we're going to resolve this issue or this problem. And as we preach through Nehemiah, this is exactly what's happening. Nehemiah is going to receive some news, and it's going to pull on his relational affiliations. It's going to force him to reprioritize his life and the things that are going on to it to see if he's going to be able to put himself in a place to be used by God to take care of some family business. Everybody say family business. Now, I say family business. We just sung that beautiful song, uh, I uh, who the son set free is free indeed. I am who you say I am. I'm a child of God. Yes, I am. What does that mean? We use those words, child of God. Um, I want to kind of flip that on his head. I want to use another closely associated um, phrase. It's a child of the covenant. You're a child of the of, if you're a child of God. If you are born again into Christ Jesus, you're a child of God, which also means that you're a child of the covenant. It means you're a covenant member of God's family. And so the Bible is framed in the covenants. I don't know if you knew that. Um, how many books in this Bible? How many old? Okay, not 72, right, because you only said it was 66, right? How many in the new? There you go, right? And so the Bible is split up into two parts. What are those two parts? Old Testament and New Testament. Did you know that another word for testament is also what? Covenant. Old covenant, new covenant. Your Bible is framed up into covenants. And we want to use covenant language all throughout this series. And what's important for us as we become better Bible readers is for us to be able uh, to understand the covenantal framework of the Bible. And it's important where we are in redemptive history and to understand which covenants are kind of governing where we are in that redemptive history. Now, let me just, this is going to feel like a whole lot of teaching. You know, I just wanted to let somebody know that the seminary is paying off somewhere. You know what I'm saying? I just want to flex that just a little bit. You know what I'm saying? But, um, but so you might have to pull your paper, your pen out. We're going to do a lot of little teaching, some new dialogue. But let me just tell you, one, you'll hear me use a lot in this series redemptive history. Pastor Tim, why don't you just say biblical history, right? Because biblical history is just covering that time from whenever God um, uh, created Adam to whenever uh, Paul finished or John finished writing their last epistle. That would be biblical history. But when I say redemptive history, I am speaking about the time period from which God started his rescue mission to bring his world, reconcile it fully back to himself until the time he finally does that. So that covers Genesis all the way through what we call the church age, which is us now, right? That period in between when Christ uh, uh, went up and when he comes back again, that's all of redemptive history. Turn to your neighbor and say, I'm a part of redemptive history. I'm a part of redemptive history, right? And so redemptive history is all framed up by covenants, right? And so you, as a child of God, as a child of the covenant, um, that comes with certain rights and responsibilities. And we're going to watch our brother Nehemiah fulfill and live into those certain rights and responsibilities. Nehemiah, the first uh, chapter, the first, first chapter, the fifth verse is where we'll kind of land and lay. He says, O Lord, God of heaven, the great and awesome God who keeps covenant 
of love with those who love him and keep his commandments. Now, who is this dude, Nehemiah? Let's do a little bit of history real quick. Say, Mac, what you got? We got some key dates. Now, if you're in your Bible, um, remember, you got in the Old Testament, right? You got those 39 books, but the first 17 are all the narrative. Once you get done with the first 17 books, then the story part is over, right? All the rest of it is kind of more details accounts of some of the things that are happening inside of the story, right? What happens once you get to Ezra and Nehemiah, traditionally, historically, you would read that as one work. And that one work of Ezra and Nehemiah is telling the story of God's people post-exile, all right? That's what you need to know. All right, what happens, once again, is really important. After there was a united kingdom, who was the first king of Israel? Saul, there you go. Second. The third. Right? After Solomon, he had some boneheaded sons. They put everything into, into chaos. The kingdom split. Ten tribes went north, two went south. Right? And so you've got a, now a divided kingdom. But what happens now is in 722, the Assyrians come and they take the northern kingdoms captive. Right? And then what happens then again at 586, now Babylon comes and they take the southern kingdoms captive. You're tracking with me, right? There once was a united kingdom, they got divided, and uh, 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 subsequently they were taken over one at a time. All right, now we get to 586, and now Jerusalem and Judah has now been taken into captivity by Babylon. But then in 539, is a guy named King Cyrus of Persia. He overthrew Babylon, right? He overthrew Babylon, and now God's people who were probably in that southern kingdom of Judah are now under Persian control. And then in 538, sorry for the last date, 538, Cyrus issues a decree, and he then allows those Jewish exiles to begin to return back to their land, all right? Now, here's where we ended up today. Brother Nehemiah, everybody say Nehemiah. Nehemiah is going to be one of those Jews who is allowed to return back to Jerusalem, all right? Now, we'll pause just for a second just to remind you. The reason why the, the Jews were taken captive, the reason why the Assyrians uh, 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 conquered them and the Babylonians conquered them was all because they had not been faithful to the covenant. They had not been faithful to uphold their end of the covenant, Right? But here is the beautiful part about your Bible, which you really got to understand and hold on to, is that God will not allow exile to be the end of his people's story. Why you took me through all that history, Pastor Tim? Because I got to tell you, you need to understand. You need to become a better Bible reader, a better redemptive historian, and sit up under there and feel the weight. We're getting ready to come up under one of the greatest seasons in our church calendar of Advent. And what is Advent about? It's not about shiny toys. It's not about world peace. It's not about, you know, all those things. It's about waiting and longing. And the best, the best Advent seasons for you is when you sit in there and you see the dark and you remember that it was so dark for God's people for so long. That's why when Jesus appears, uh, Mary appears in the temple and, and, and oh God, I can't even remember when she sings that song and that man just weeps and he has that beautiful hymn because they had been waiting, y'all. We're awaiting people, and just like those people waited on the first advent, we're still longing, amen. I get worried about some of y'all. 
Some of y'all done got that job, you got that ride, that 401k, and you ain't waiting on nothing. You living in your heaven. Some of y'all can't identify with the longing anymore. And my heart breaks for you. Because unless you get a little dissatisfied on this side of heaven, what's waiting on you might not be worth waiting on for yourself. It's a longing that's happening. And so, once again, God will not let exile be the end of his people's story. He's faithful to fulfill his promises, right? So God raises up these leaders to bring his people back. Cyrus issues the decree that his people can go back. God raises up three different particular leaders to take his people back in three different waves. The, uh, waves. the first leader who brings the people back is Zerubbabel. Everybody say Zerubbabel. Come on, man. You go, hey, that's how you win about $75 in free drinks at wing night if you got Zerubbabel. You know what I'm saying? Zerubbabel, right? Zerubbabel, first person, God raises him up, he brings the people back. And the first thing that Zerubbabel does is he takes the people back and they begin to rebuild the temple. Why is the temple so important? Because that is the literal and physical representation of where God dwells. We got to establish the place where heaven meets earth. That's the most important thing. Our worship of the true and living God. Amen, somebody. So Zerubbabel takes the first wave back. And they rebuild the temple. Then Ezra then takes the second wave back. And Ezra then begins to read the Torah, which they had not been exposed to in so long, right? And he begins to disciple the people. So, hey, the temple's reestablished first. Then Ezra comes back and he begins to rebuild the people themselves to re help them re-identify themselves as God's people and what that means to walk with him. And lastly, the person who comes last, who y'all think that is? It's Nehemiah. Nehemiah comes back to rebuild the wall. Here's a quote um, that I love. That after the exile, God is renewing his people in the land in order to carry out what he promised to Abraham. God's people must renew their commitment to covenant faithfulness. Everybody say covenant faithfulness. Laying hold of God's forgiveness and seeking to practice purity in their corporate and private lives. All right. Now. We just said all those conquests were happening because of Israel's lack of covenant faithfulness. Um, And Nehemiah was a part of, um, you know, now he is serving underneath Persian rule. Cyrus is his king. And now Nehemiah's got a really high position. You know, Nehemiah's probably middle class, Mason. You know what I'm saying? He ain't raising no support. You know, he, you know, he probably, I just, in my holy imagination, you know, Nehemiah's middle class. You know, he got a little change, change. Everybody, he got a little change. You know what I'm saying? He got a, you know, you know how you folks do it. You know what I'm saying? This, my mother-in-law here and my father-in-law, so they know. You know, when we have, like, family talks and we talk about people we grew up with, you know, man, how is Marquis? Oh, you know, Marquis. You know, he graduated college, got a nice job. You know, that's what we, you know, you know, that's what we say. You know, that's what we say. That's what we say. I don't know how y'all do it on the other side, you know, you know what I'm saying? But that's how we do it, you know what I'm saying? Oh, you know, he got a nice job. Now, got a wife and kids? Yeah, girl, yeah. That's how we do it, right? Well, Nehemiah, I imagine he's not like the other exiles. He's got a very high position of very high importance in the king's court, right? As a matter of fact, as the scripture would say he was a cupbearer. 
But what happened in the first chapter of Nehemiah, Nehemiah comes back, he was told that the Jews, the Jews that had survived the exile and returned back to Jerusalem. So there was a group who, remember Cyrus said, y'all can go back. There's a group that went back. And so those Jews that went back, Nehemiah got a report that they were in great danger, all right? They were in great danger. Um, they were living underneath great shame because the walls of Jerusalem were destroyed, right? Um, and when the, what it means that the walls were destroyed, it just left them exposed and defenseless, right? There was nothing to stop any kind of people from any kind of attack uh, from taking advantage of those people. And so when, ne- when Nehemiah heard it, uh, Nehemiah um, was greatly distressed and heartbroken, And as the scripture says in chapter 1, he mourned, he fasted, and he prayed. Can we just pause real quick? This is uh, for free. I know I told you before, I'm making a personal mission to kick anxieties behind and shame behind. I was at a conference all week, and one of the great brothers um, he's a pastor out of Nashville. His name's Scotty Smith. But today we're talking about identity. And he, he, was just, he was just riffing. He was like, man, you know what? I don't know why um, our people uh, live under um, shame so willingly as their identity, right? We feel it. We feel all the anxiety. We got all the stresses, right? But with all we have within us, we don't have to choose to live under that. And so when we are grieved, when we are distressed, when we are in the dark night of the soul, I just want to commend to you out of Nehemiah 1 his, what his, his formula was, right? How many of us have returned back to, oh God, I just lost it in my notes, um, weeping? Y'all know weeping is good. Sometimes you just got to get on there and cry it out. And work it out before the Lord. But the weeping, the mourning, right? That's the lamenting and the grieving. When you feel brokenness, you don't have to just accept brokenness. God, this is horrible. And this is not the way you designed it. And that could just be the end of the sentence. How many of y'all hate seeing sin and brokenness? It's something about the Imago Day in you when you drive up and down summer and you see people who don't have a place to live and that burdens you. That's good. Right, when you see food insecurity, that's good. When you see people taking it, that's good. You should weep over it. And when we don't feel it deeply, we should repent. Lord, help me. I want to feel deeply. But I love the, the last two. I think we do. I think we weep over things. I do think we mourn over things. I don't think we like to do the last two. I don't think we like to do praying as often as we should. That's me. I'm just going to complain and move away. But praying... And then maybe the ultimate one we got to start enacting. I I need to see some more people pushing away that plate. I'm going to fast on this. Hey, it's some friction in my marriage. Tim, why you not eating? Baby, I just need to fast right now. I need some juice. We need some power. We need some healing in this marriage. I'm going to fast. When the last time you fast for your kiddos? When the last time you fasted about your, your, your boss and your job? When the last time you fasted about Memphis and all the things going wrong with it instead of getting on Facebook? Okay, I just check it. Amen, license wall. Amen, we in the book. We in the book. Come on now. Let's fast and pray. Let's weep and let's mourn. 
Anyway, this is where Nehemiah finds himself, right? He's broken over the status of his, his home, his, his ancestral home, and his people being exposed. And here's where we want to get at, really. Though he was a servant in high position, though he was in middle-class position, serving in the capital city of Persia in Susa, right? He began praying to the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. How many of y'all ain't too big and bad to remember where you come from? See, some of y'all, I know some of y'all get up in church and y'all got up in, you know, Presbyterianism, and you, you forgot where you came from. I'm just messing with y'all in y'all worship. Some of y'all know you be screaming from the time you walked into church to the time you leave, but then now all of a sudden you let some people just, okay, hey, 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 hey. How many of y'all know some people who just going to be themselves no matter what? Oh, man, don't, don't invite them because they just going to be themselves, you know, you know, for better or for worse. But I love this. Nehemiah, middle class Persian, working in high office, right? But he hears about his ancestral home. He knows what's going on with his kinsmen. And what does he do? He begins to tap into his covenantal bag. He begins to pray to the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob about his homeland. He started using that covenant language because he knew that was his true identity. I'm a child of God. I'm not where I work. I'm not how much I make. I'm not my sexuality. I'm not my race. I'm not who I publicly or politically identify. I'm a child of God. That's my number one identity. Is it yours? Is it ours? That's the challenge today. We can sing about it when it's so cute and when it's so cathartic for our restless souls, right? I'm a child of God when we want to be forgiven. But is that the identity we really live out of day to day? I am a child of God, which means that comes with certain benefits, but it also comes with certain responsibilities. Nehemiah got that call, y'all. Remember we intro? Mama sick. Hey, they about to sell the property. Hey, such, such just lost his job. They need somewhere to go. He got the call. And immediately, because of his relational ties and because of the priorities of his affiliation, it just, how many y'all, y'all have lived long, I have pastored you long enough to know that some of y'all in those seasons, you have got that call and you have quit jobs and you have quit extracurriculars. You have moved money around to take care of things for people and things you thought were close to you and were family. I have watched you do it. And this is exactly what's happening to Nehemiah. Now, his covenant family needs him. So he says, O Lord God of heaven, the great and awesome God who keeps covenant. What the heck is a covenant? We've been talking about covenant for a long time, but let's talk about it real quick. Dictionary of Bible themes just says, it's God's commitment to and requirement of his people. Let's just pause. It's his commitment to and requirement of his people. Some of y'all, we're not going to stay long. Take a picture. You're going to have to go back and get some of this later. When you think about covenant, the biblical covenant, this is what we're talking about. His commitment to and his requirement of his people. But it's expressed in promise, the language of promise, law, judgment, faithfulness, and mercy. Right? As um, Bible Project would say, maybe to put it more simply, If you want to just understand what covenant is, it's a partnership. 
right? Now, there's all different kind of partnerships in the ancient Near East. All right, everybody say ancient Near East. We call it A-N-E in the seminary world, right? But the idea is this, that sometimes there were royal grant kind of partnerships. And what would happen is whoever was uh, the blessor, right, uh, would just choose to unconditionally uh, reward someone for faithfulness. If someone had demonstrated extraordinary service, they would just say, hey, man, here's an unconditional blessing of my peace and prosperity and for generations and generations and generations. Then there was more of, of, of a covenant, which was almost like a... Uh, equal partnership and parity. I'm looking at Ashley because I'm sure Ashley, she in the business world, she know how that works, right? Okay, if I give you this, you give this. You know, it's pretty equal. You know what I'm saying? The table is pretty level. You're putting in 50%. I'm putting in 50%. And those, those were sometimes in the ancient Near East, there would be covenants that were just almost equal in parity, right? But then there was a suzerain vassal treaty. And these were covenants that were conditional, and there was clearly someone who was bringing more bank to the party than the other. And this was absolutely conditional. I will choose to give you my military provision and protection. I will choose to unleash my, my treasury and my resources. I will give you the favor of my affiliation if you, if you, if you. Everybody say if you. Now, the suzerain vassal treaty was absolutely, absolutely, everybody say absolutely, conditional. Let's look at a couple key covenants in the Bible real quick. First, you got the Noahic. Go back, Genesis 9. I'm going to run through them. This is not where I'm going to hang on my sermon. So if you want them, take a picture real quick. That was an unconditional divine promise, never to destroy all earthly life with some natural catastrophe, right? That was a royal grant covenant, right? That was unconditional, right? Hey, I'll never again destroy all earthly life with some kind of natural catastrophe, right? And the covenant sign is the rainbow. Next, you got the Abrahamic. Now, if some of y'all are looking real quick, you'll be like, oh, man, that's, that, why has Pastor Tim got Abrahamic beat? Because there was a first kind of covenant of Abraham in Genesis 15, which was in regards to land. Hey, I will give you this land. Now, here's the B part which is probably, if you have one, this is the one that really kind of is the anchor for, for us and where we'll be going, right? And this, the Abrahamic B covenant, was a conditional pledge to be Abraham's God and the God of his descendants. Somebody ought to say amen right there. This the one. It's a conditional pledge to be the God, Abraham's God and the God of his descendants. The condition was consecrated, was for uh, that's my typo, was for us to be consecrated to the Lord as symbolized through circumcision. Let's keep going. What's another one? This Sinaitic covenant, Exodus 19 through 24. That was a conditional pledge to be Israel's God, protector and guarantor of its blessed destiny on the condition of Israel's total consecration to the Lord as his people or his kingdom who lived by his rule and served his purposes in history. And lastly, the Davidic covenant, 2 Samuel 7. That was an unconditional promise to establish and maintain the Davidic dynasty on the throne of Israel to provide it forever with a godly king like David. Now, once again, let's go back. Nehemiah says, O Lord God of heaven, the great and awesome God who keeps covenants of love with those who love him and keep his commandments. So obviously we know that in a covenant there's two parties at least. And who are those parties? One is God. And we see Nehemiah say it's so beautiful. Can we just worship for a minute? He's the God of heaven. And he is great and awesome. 
When the last time you prayed and you started and you didn't move straight to supplication and petition, you just sat in the praise? You know, we're going back to Philippians 4, 6 through 7 and 8, when he says, hey, be anxious for nothing, but with thanksgiving make your prayers and petitions known to God. You know why it's so important to not just run into your petition without the thanksgiving? Because how many of y'all then found peace while you were praying? You know why? Because it's impossible for you to worry while you're giving thanks to God. God, I just want to thank you for my life, my health, and my strength. God, I want to thank you, Lord God, that I don't even like my job, but I got one to go to, Lord God. God, I thank you, Lord God, that you are giving me grace for every step. God, I thank you that your word is true and that you will not ever fail it. And God, by the way, what was I even needing to pray about? Nehemiah, before he started laying into it, he just said, let me pause for a second. Oh, Lord, our God, how great and awesome. You keep your covenants, and you do it with love, steadfast love and kindness and mercy. Now, come on, y'all. How can we even pray and be worried when we remind ourselves of what's true? Come on, man. Nehemiah in there. He in his bag. So he prays, and he prays these beautiful things. And then, I love this. He says, God, you're great. You're awesome. God, you're the God of the heavens. But then he starts talking about God's reputation. He's like, you know, God, we heard on the street, you know, your reputation is that, you know, you keep your covenants. You know, all these songs we sing about, he will do it again, and keeping his promises. And what's what's, uh, my favorite um, Maverick song? Oh, gosh. Great is your faithfulness to me. Um, All that is covenantal language. And he has developed a reputation over the millennia of the one who keeps his promises. Can I just encourage someone today? Did you know you serve the one who keeps his promises? And that ain't what they saying in 22. That's what they been saying. Man, he keep his promises, bro. He got a reputation for keeping his promises. But I love the other three, right? It's this, this hesed. Anybody y'all know? This is that covenantal faithfulness, covenantal love. And the word that's being used there in the Hebrew, they have such a hard time translating it because it's so close to God's character. It just, they just call it in a number of different places, steadfast love, loving kindness. But it's a, it's a love that is based on covenant, Right? And it's a love that essentially it should not make sense because all covenants are based on partnership. All covenants are based on if you're not agreeing to the terms of this agreement, I have the legal right to get out of this deal. But the reason why they have this word in there is because you really shouldn't have love in a covenant. It should be straightforward. Bro, I asked you to cut my grass. I asked you to trim the edges. If you can't trim the edges, I got to find somebody else. See, that's what you human folks know how to do. God had to invent a word to describe how he does covenant. You don't even know what this is. I have steadfast love. I delight in showing mercy. I'm slow to anger. I'm compassionate. That's how I do covenants, which also is a pretty sobering thing. 
that if the covenant with Jesus doesn't work out, it ain't on him. <laughs> he always keeps his promises. And he loves to be patient. He loves to be merciful. He loves showing kindness. If you, if the covenant fails, it's just because you chose to walk away. I'm looking at, I, I could be like, I don't like showing kindness. I don't like showing mercy. If you don't do what I say do, I got to find somebody else. That's not our God. Do you know that as long as you have breath, at any moment, you can turn. And he would delight to welcome you back into covenant faithfulness. And this is what we're walking through in this period of redemptive history. God has sent these three leaders not to punish his people, but he wants them to come back in the covenant relationship with him. And so he sends three leaders to help them work it out. For you UT fans, you understand this, right? You want to be restored back to national prominence. <laughs> So what has to happen? You got to get a leader to help whip you into shape. So God sends Zerubbabel. God sends Ezra. God sends Nehemiah to coach his people. This is how we walk with God. Pause. You need more than just accountability partners. You need deacons. You need elders. You need pastors to help you, remind you, to encourage you what it looks like to walk in covenant faithfulness to Yahweh. Because we're just a wayward people. Even your pastor needs pastors. Amen, amen somebody. Gina gave an amen because she know. <laughs> amen. <laughs> so the God of heaven who has a reputation of being patient and showing mercy and being steadfast with his love, he makes a covenant with man. Clearly, Nehemiah 1.5 says, what, who's the man we're talking about? It's the people who love him and keep his commandments. Everybody say, what? Pastor, my Sunday school teacher told me that the gospel was free. Amen? It is. To those who love him and keep his commandments. Before you... Uh, Grace people start getting nervous. Just relax. First of all, I would just say, I think we do have to do a little bit of correction. I think it would be improper, especially since we know as much as we know about Leviticus, to think that these people were not living under grace. That might be hard for you, but let me just understand. We have Leviticus. So, so you do understand, nobody always got what they deserved. Do you understand that? That's not what, so it would be improper for you to read your Bible that way. Oh, that when Jesus came, that's when great. No, that's not how it works. Because if everybody got the eye for the eye and everybody got what they deserved, all Israel be wiped out. That's not what happened. Once again, the God who is steadfast in love, showing mercy, right? So we just got to understand our language a little bit, right? So when it says those who keep his commandments, the word there is guard, observe, defend. 
And I think it is a commitment to uphold. It does not mean perfection. I don't think God ever assumed that his people would perfectly follow him. And so I do think that's a little bit of hopefully encouragement to you. It's like, oh, man, the assumption is that you're not going to do this thing perfectly. Though that was the standard. So we do have a problem. The problem is that we have this covenant. We have this partnership with God. We're never upholding our end of the bargain. This is why God's people are in exile. That's why they're in this constant cycle of being shamed and away from their land. And so we need a new covenant. Everybody say a new covenant. R.C. Sproul says that what's going to happen throughout the Bible, which you should read from cover to cover, really, is that what happens throughout Scripture is especially those covenants that we talked about with Abraham, that God would be the God of Abraham and his descendants. What happens throughout redemptive history is that more and more of the covenant is explained, it's renewed, and more of it is revealed. So they keep stacking, right? What happens is when you, when you got to Abrahamic covenant B, right, and then when you get to the Sinaitic covenant, the more of it, more of it came into clearer focus. And then when you get to David, more of it is revealed. Like, oh, God will be his God, but he's also going to have a king that will reign forever eternally. And that's what's happening with the Bible. It's just kind of keep building, and it keeps getting more beautiful. But it's all pointing to something and someone. What is it? Say it, it's the number one Sunday school answer ever. <laughs> Jesus! We kind of first see it more clearly codified in Jeremiah 31. Just write it down, Jeremiah 31, 31 through 34. And it's an unconditional divine promise to unfaithful Israel to forgive its sins and establish his relationship with it on a new basis by writing his law on their hearts. And it's going to be a covenant of pure grace. Sarah, Matt, you can go to the next one. The Dictionary of Bible Themes just says it this way. It's the fulfillment of God's purposes of salvation expressed in the covenants of the Old Testament. But it's mediated by Jesus Christ and sealed in his blood. And it is a covenant of grace, the benefits of which include forgiveness, a renewed relationship with God. And through the Holy Spirit, an inward transformation that enables obedience to its demands and so ensures that will not again be broken. Jesus takes the stones, what he wrote on stones, and now through his spirit, he places the law in your heart. And not only does he place demands in your heart, but he puts his person in your body so you can do what truth demands of you. That's the new covenant you ought to praise God right now for it. Like I said, we've all backed out of our partnership with God. And through the new covenant, what he does is he, you know, essentially, he keeps whittling things down. Like you got all Israel and then he takes a covenant they fail in and he keeps taking a smaller group to work with. And the smaller group that he works with is not so that he could just exclusively have that smaller group and keep everybody else away. But what he does is he makes a covenant with a smaller group of people so that hopefully they can keep inviting the other people back in. Still grace. You remember 2 Corinthians 5, right? You became, you've been made new in Christ so that you can now be agents of reconciliation. So don't let people bag on Christianity like it's wanting to be distinctly exclusive. Our God desires that none should perish. 
but he saves some so that those some can go get others. Are you willing to be used so that other people can come into the covenant bliss that you are in? But as I said before, Jesus is the one who fulfills all the covenant commands. He's the faithful partner that we have all failed to be. Covenants are cut. Everybody say cut. When you go to the barbershop, you get a fresh cut. And cut just means ratification. It just means how it's solidified, right? And essentially, we have this beautiful picture in Genesis 15. Abraham lays open these animals. God puts Abraham to sleep. <laughs> now we're going to have a partnership, and we're ready to sign a deal, and my partner's sleep. That ain't how it works, is it? Brother, we got to sign this deal. Hold on. That, that ought to preach right there. That should just preach right there. We're going to have a deal, but buddy, I don't need you. You just go to sleep. As God cuts the covenant with Abraham, he says, man, essentially he splits these animals open. And the idea behind cutting these covenants is that if I fail to keep my promise, let what has been done to these animals be done to me. This is why in the Abrahamic covenant we had circumcision, right? That you took the men and the foreskin of their flesh was cut. And they knew that essentially what that also meant is, hey, man, if I don't keep my end of the bargain, may what's been done uh, to my foreskin be done to me also. But here's the problem with the covenants, and here's why we needed the new covenant. It's just because it didn't really matter what God was doing with the partnership, we could never hold up our end. We are the weak link. All of us. None of y'all know better than the other. I don't care how much money you got in your 401k. I don't care how many children you got educated. And I don't care what your yard look like. And I don't care how many degrees. When it comes to our righteousness, all of us lacking. And as far as a partnership with God's concerned... You ain't bringing nothing to the table. Nothing. This is why we needed Jesus. You know, his covenants were cut, the shedding of blood. This is why Jesus, when he comes in Matthew 26 and he's standing at the table and he's the Last Supper, this is why he uses that covenant language. He says, this is the new covenant, and he doesn't just use an indefinite article. He says, Personal pronoun, this is my blood that's being shed here to cut this new covenant. This is how you're in. And this is what I love for those of y'all who are new to Christianity. Now we are under this new covenant, right? No longer is our covenant status dependent upon our obedience. We couldn't keep it. Jesus has now paid the price for our, for our disobedience, right? And so now we get in on his account. We are made right according to his account, right? 
This is why I love all the pronouns in uh, John, whoever, anyone, whomever, anybody, if you believe on him, now you can become covenant partners with God. You are a part of his covenant family. She want to know if that's good news to anybody. You know, we, once again, we all have this sense of justice, you know. My baby girl is playing soccer. I just want to publicly just say before you watch her do her thing, she is aggressive. <laughs> She's aggressive, okay. She's aggressive. And listen, can I just say, your child is made in the image of God, and, you know, I will happily pay those co-pays or whatever's necessary. And we love you, you know what I'm saying? But uh, one of the things, you know, she's just got this innate sense of, of ju- if she sees something happen that she thinks is wrong, <sighs> somebody got to pay for that. Somebody got to pay for that. She's an enforcer. I was never an enforcer. Ralph, no, I'm not. I was never the mean guy playing anything, but my baby girl is an enforcer. She's going to take care of business. I'm going to ask the Holy Spirit just to give me a moment of brevity and clarity just to encourage you real quick. I love that line. When Satan tempts me to despair, Remind me of the guilt within. Upwards I look and see him there who made an end to all my sin. Now, here's the thing that I love about that. It's because we all walk around with an innate sense of guilt and shame. Because the truth is, if we're honest, we know we're not good enough. We have to live 365 days of the year, 24-7. We know we're not matching up to what the covenant requires. But the beauty of this covenant relationship that you have with Jesus is that these things just get wiped away. That literally, look, there's sometimes I have walked into uh, the, um, the, you know, several offices, the principal's offices. That's the one that's coming to mind right now. Timothy Johnson, did you pay your money for the field trip? And, you know, there's times when I was like, uh, uh. And, you know, you just thought you was going to slide in. Can I just tell you, ain't nobody sliding in to heaven. But then there are times when I've been called to the principal's office. Timothy Johnson, you paid your money? I stand there with confidence. (laughs) My mama paid all $250 of that. The next time you are tempted to despair about your shame, your identity, and your sin, you remind the devil, my daddy paid for all of that. There is no reason for you to cower anymore. Do you hear me, child of the covenant, people of the God? Your daddy has paid for all of it. Paid for your peace, paid for your joy, paid the price for your guilt and your shame. 
And that's why we're talking about this today, y'all. Why are we talking about covenant and we're supposed to be raising money? Well, because, listen, y'all, this is, this is Genesis 17, 7. Throw it up there. This, hey, and I will establish my covenant between me and you and your offspring after you throughout generations for an everlasting covenant to be a God to you and your offspring after you. We're talking about this is because there's a great temptation for us to live in a vacuum about the time, space, and history we're in now. But what I want to remind you is you are a part of something, a covenant that God started thousands and thousands of years ago and that will continue after you. And what we are doing is not about that building. It's about something bigger. It's about a covenant promise to not let exile and futility be the final word on God's great earth. That God is still working through a group of people to bring shalom, not just in 2022, but shalom on Summer Avenue for hundreds of years. That's what I'm inviting you into. I don't care about that building. I want to pastor a group of people who want to ride with me, who would be willing to let God leverage their lives and their resources to make sure his presence could be felt on the street, not just for our lifetime, but for your children's and children's lifetimes. Let's go get that. Nehemiah is sitting in his cozy perch. He got a good job. But he heard his people had some business they need to take care of. He was like, yo, I wasn't even alive when the people committed the sins that made us exile. But he wasn't worried about pointing fingers about who did it and who done it. He just saw a problem. He knew the glory of the God, Lord. Of, he knew the glory of God needed to be restored and said, I'm that dude. I'm a child of the covenant. That's my daddy. And I want in. I want to know who wants in, you Will you live out of your primary identity as a Caucasian male with a master's degree with a great job? Or are you just Thomas, child of God? Hispanic woman. Children, businesses, or just Margo, child of God. Which one you gonna choose? And I wanna tell you, I wanna invite you into the freedom of that last song we just sung about. I'm chosen, I'm not forsaken. That's what children of God can say. But if you say that, then you also gotta accept the call when the covenant family, when the, when the family needs you, when that phone ring, say, hey, mama about to lose a house. Oh, that's mama's problem. Okay. Okay. No, when you're part of the fam, bam, the family needs you, we respond. So how do you identify yourself? Is your primary identity child of God? Do you realize today that you are part of something that has existed thousands of years before you and will, by God's grace, if he does not come again, exist thousands of years after us? 
but we can respond like Nehemiah because of our covenant association, because of our identity as child of God, that we can allow ourselves to be used so that this covenant family of God can expand and more and more people who have been affected by the fall can experience the loving and lasting steadfast relationship of a God who has a reputation of keeping his promises and being uniquely kind to people who are undeserving. Who wants in on that? Would you close your eyes?